What happens when you combine the most innovative, eccentric and charismatic leaders, disruptors and founders from tech with the pedigree and history of one of the most established institutions within the City of London? The Searching for Mana podcast will be produced in partnership with the London Stock Exchange. I'm Lloyd Wahead, the host of Searching for Mana. We're going to be interviewing some of the leaders, influencers and disruptors in the tech space, where I'm going to be trying to dig in and find out what's their mana, their superpower, their magic. Ruth, welcome on to Searching for Mana show. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you on the show. Um, Really excited to cover uh, many different topics. Uh, with our guest this week, Ruth Hancock, who is the CEO with Octopus Money, uh, was the CEO with Octopus Investment. Um, Ruth, before I try to um, explain the progress uh, that Octopus is making and your involvement within it, it'd be far better if you did that. Could you just in brief explain to us um, the the recent move um, and what that means for your focus, please? Yeah, great. Um, So yeah, I'm running a brand new octopus business called Octopus Money um, that we've actually created from a couple of businesses that we already had. So so we're very much at growth stage rather than startup. We're a business that believes in everyone getting help with their money. So one of the things we'll probably talk about over the course of, um, of this show is I've been in and around fintech and banking for 10 years and had loads and loads of conversations with people about how they feel about money as you do when you're launching new products and services and people say the most extraordinary things people say things like oh whenever I think about money it makes me feel stupid or I feel like I'm always losing or I need help but I don't know where to go for help and I've come to the conclusion that the only way you can reduce the stress that people feel in um managing their money is through a hybrid model of people and technology, giving people actual help to get to the money plan so they can plan for the life they want to live. So that's what Octopus Money does. We match normally employees in their workplace with a financial coach or a financial advisor, depending on how complicated their situation is, help them get to a money plan and then use technology to help them then take all the actions they need to take to get their finances in shape. Thank you on a mission to give everyone access to money advice from a real person. I ripped off the website and I love it because the the group that um, when I'm not busy doing this show, uh, I manage the MANA group at its core uh, has a hiring business and um, you have some really brilliant innovation from your Silicon Valley technical HR platforms and you have your traditional executive search and hiring solutions. And, and very much we're aligned on believing as you are, but for, in a different way that, you know, the future is some type of hybrid of elevating consultants who can give critique to people in this all important thing, which is either their hiring or their careers. Um, so I would like to know, you know, because that's not what everybody's doing. There's a lot of pure play artificial intelligence plays on this right now. Uh, and, you know, if you go through a list of where the most careers are going to be disruptive, um, you know, in, in, in the investment world, we have um, chatbots, um, which has been a, a huge trend for five years or so. You know, almost everybody, 99% believes that's disrupting that employment space. And that is the future being built right now. I'm sure you've got a hybrid view on this, but please talk through this rationale and why you're taking that approach. Yeah, and it's a great point because you know, we're not going to be the right answer for everyone. No one brand or model is. Um, so actually what fascinates me is filling a gap that I don't think others want to or, or are filling. So there are loads of people out there who are pretty self-directed and a digital-only model absolutely spot on the, there's that space is actually pretty nicely served um, and if you get out of bed in the morning thinking I, I feel pretty confident I can write a long-term financial plan you can just go and do it and there's then people who are fairly wealthy have quite complicated assets so I also think are quite well served by the financial advice industry the bit that interests me is those people who aren't very self-directed who when you ask them say no I want help 
um, they don't really have anywhere to go at the moment. So the broad answer is it's not you never come into a business like this thinking this is the model that's going to work for absolutely every consumer. Although I do think when it comes to money, it's a little bit like health that more people are nervous than we think. So if I take an example, when I was running Octopus Investments, which I've been doing for the last um, five years, we have about 800 employees and we rolled out a previous version of Octopus Money um, to that um, to that user base. And we asked the question of how often have you not been able to concentrate on work because you've been so worried about your money? And 80% of people said that had happened to them at some point. You're like 80% of people who work in investments have felt so stressed about their money that they haven't been able to focus on work. That to me just screams underserved. Um, so I know there's an underserved segment. It's not everyone though. And you know, this would be a poor industry if you didn't have a load of people trying loads of different models. Um, but I think there's a there's a customer cohort for whom hybrid is the right answer because they're nervous or there's a big apathy barrier. No one gets out of bed in the morning wanting to write a financial plan. Um, so you've got to help people through that. Ruth, I know some people who do, um, just because we work in the financial markets. But, you know, those kind of X, Excel spreadsheet, actuarial type of individuals aside. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good on them. Good on yes. them. Like, if everyone was like that, this this wouldn't be a problem. But, uh, but I think, unfortunately, they're in the minority. Or maybe to, fo to focus on that um, that segmentation, just, just, just one layer um, further. So we really understand this. It's really interesting and that does make complete sense let's categorize people who have sophisticated wealth as not in this segment but the employees you just spoke about are probably quite well paid um i say well educated but but bright sharp individuals um and so it's really concerning that they did give this feedback and those ratios are really high and that's not a sort of tiny sample size either so it's compelling could you tell us why that was? And, and so I just, to preset that a little bit more, what's the reason you can't focus on work? It's because you are burying your head in the sand because you don't know how to fix something. It's because you don't want to, because it's boring, you don't want to do it. Um, like that layer of why they're allowing themselves to get into that situation when they're sharp, it's an issue if your finances aren't well managed and, and you probably could manage them. What, what is that? I think it's a massive variety of things. So I think there is something in finances, which is like many aspects of life. Preparation is part of the um, part of the battle, because when people get stressed, it's generally when something acute happens. So that might be because they're starting a family, they're moving house, they are getting divorced, they've suffered a bereavement and everything comes crashing together. Mm. Um, and in that moment, there's a really uh, acute need to understand what the right financial decision to make is. But yet what most people haven't done is done the prep before that to understand even how their assets fit together, what pension assets they have. You know, a remarkable number of people couldn't tell you either how much pension they have or where it's um, invested. Um, they haven't thought how much they need for the goal they've got in their life. They haven't thought about retirement. So when that acute need happens, there's no sort of framework to put a decision in because you're not, you don't understand pensions, ISAs, savings, your risk appetite, any of those things. Um, and I think that's true of people, not because they're not capable of doing it, but because something gets in the way. It's the classic kind of importance versus urgent matrix that I would put long term financial planning in the not urgent, important bucket. Yeah. Um, and those yeah. are the things, you know, you speak to anyone in your team. What are the things that get left behind? It's the um, important, not urgent things. But yet those are the things that make a real difference to your productivity, to the company you work for, to your chances yeah. of long term success. Yeah. And often you need someone to jolt you and hold your hand through that so that then when the tough thing happens, which is normally when the stress bubbles to the surface, 
you've got that baseline. You can take the quick decision because you've got the plan. You understand it. You know what you know what a pension is. You understand compounding. All of these things that many, many, most of us are intellectually capable of doing. But we've got loads of other things going on. Um, and sitting educating ourselves is probably not what people want to spend their time doing. Where forty five minutes on the phone with a coach who says, "Right, let's just lay all this out." People come away going, "Ah." Oh, God, I feel good now. Um, it's really sort of uplifting for people to um, to do that planning and to feel like they understand and have done that groundwork. I can really relate to this. Um, to give the audience, you know, a, a case study, let's use my family right now uh, loosely. Um, you know, we have a lot of those things colliding that you've just mentioned. In our extended family, there's... Um, some people who are a very old age and there's uh, some planning that needs to happen. And then that makes you go into the mode of thinking for your family and the ones close to you, how should we plan all of these variety of things? And, you know, none of us are sophisticated at it and we're all focused on, you know, all, all the things we've got in our, um, in our kind of weekly careers. And my experience was this, um, you know, seeking some advice on what the right type of um, professional uh, institutes to go to, to set up some of these, uh, these structures. And, you know, receiving a document in the post that uh, was like 150 pages, and so complicated, and then, you know, trying to kind of communicate with them taking weeks. And um, if there had been, which we got to, but through a lot of digging, an individual who you just had some type of reference and trust was very uh, passionate and broadly speaking, well-versed in this to soundboard off, you'd get there so much quicker. It would actually have been a really enjoyable experience. Like it's, 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 it's a weight off your shoulders getting through these things, but the big pack of documentation is is um is certainly daunting and intimidating so i love it i can see why this is um a really brilliant way in this particular solution to go at this roof what i'd ask is has fintech therefore over the last 10 years because this is at the core of everything fintech has talked about and i know it's gone and served other segments has it failed then like to this point in your view to take this opportunity has fintech really failed to do what it should be doing I think for this customer type, yes. Yeah. So where fintech hasn't failed is it served a bunch of other customer types really well. For this yeah. customer type, I think fintech, if you characterize fintech as digital only, I think it has failed. And that's not because people haven't thought of wonderful journeys. It's because I believe, um, you know, you, you mentioned a word that I think is really powerful in this space, which is trust. So actually, I think people do trust digital now to help them make the right decisions. But trust in someone understanding your personal situation is a very different thing because, you you know, the, the digital solution only knows what you tell it. And you don't know whether you've thought about it in the right way, where through a conversation, you get that trust that, OK, this, some, this person understands me. They understand not only my numbers, but they understand actually my hopes and dreams and my goals and how my family works. And that builds a level of trust that digital alone has struggled with, understandably. Um, the other the other aspect of trust, and I think your situation is a is a brilliant case in point, is that it's quite a dispersed industry. So you know, back in the day, you might have gone to a bank when you wanted help, and now um, banks don't often offer advice. Uh, there are lots of fintech platforms, there are execution only platforms, and the financial advice industry is relatively unbranded in that most firms are quite small. So most people go, I need help. And then they go, oh my goodness, where do I go? So the thing we found quite powerful about partnering with workplaces is that um, a workplace will obviously do all of their due diligence on us. And they'll say, how do you do this? How do you think about this? They'll put us through our paces rightly. Um, what we aim to create is kind of one front door that then anyone can walk through and we will help them get access to the right help they need because most people get as far as knowing I need help. They don't know whether they need a coach or an advisor or an execution only platform. Um, the idea with Octopus Money is that you walk through that door and we go, well, actually, 
what you need is probably someone to chat to to get to a money plan. But you don't need product advice, which is what the regulator would term financial advice. Therefore, it should be at a lower cost for you. Actually, someone else's situation will be really complex and there'll be tax allowances and all sorts of things to work through. You probably need kind of full blown financial advice. So this is the right person for you. Um, and it just gets people past that. They get to I need help, but then they go through the situation you've been through, which is they look around, they go, I don't know where to go. I'll get a pack of documents. I don't really have time to read them all. Um, and actually the stress levels go up rather than down. Um, so that's the other bit that I think we need to uh, we need to fight. And we found partnering with employers starts to build that trust so people don't have to go through that discovery process, which is um, which is stressful in itself. Yeah, amazing. Love it. So moving to the strategic um, ambitions that you have to uh, make as large an impact as possible, going through a b2b model here therefore one of them is going to be um, awareness of the product and growth and business development and so on and so forth so i'd like to know how that's going um and really i'm thinking this segment probably didn't get brokered because perhaps it's the most non-obvious from a and i'm just gonna be crude short-term financial pers perspective so therefore, the volume I assume that you have to go out, which is why the business-to-business -business play is 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 both nice but makes sense, is going to be huge. So you 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 must believe that this is possible. But I'd be interested in the strategy and the metrics to make this have the impact you're hoping for. Yeah, it's a great question because I think the reason we're doing it as part of the Octopus Group is. Um, is, is sort of answers some of those questions. So for anyone that doesn't know much about Octopus, we're a privately held group of companies, entrepreneur founded, entrepreneur led 23 years on. Uh, we're really fortunate that unlike five years ago when I joined Octopus, most people have now heard of us because of our sister company, Octopus Energy, yeah. um, which is um, which is now one of the biggest energy companies in the UK, is customer champion. We're all hugely proud of it. So that's really useful for us because most people have heard of Octopus. And when you're talking about trust and you're talking about doing the right thing, um, most people get that that's the group of companies we are and that's the that's the values we live by. Um, the other thing that's true is you're exactly right. Most people would not set up a business in this space for a couple of reasons. One, it's slow. So actually getting people to trust you um, and building a business like this isn't something that happens overnight. It's not a SaaS play. It's not a tech only play. And scaling businesses that involve people is complicated um, because you've got to balance demand and supply in a way that a tech only business doesn't. Um, I'm so fortunate to be part of Octopus because Octopus is way more interested in disrupting industries than in delivering quick financial returns. And we always have been. And, it, and you know, you probably wouldn't have started an energy company were that not the case, much as that's been um, that's been a runaway growth story. So we're pretty patient. You know, our investments business, we've built over 23 years. Um, and that's how it's got to the scale of 13 billion under management it has now. So we get this space and we get that it takes a while, but actually what gets the, everyone from the founders, the shareholders who are mainly employees out of bed in the morning is kind of, can we make a societal difference? Um, and we know that we have to be patient to do that because we're creating a segment that doesn't really exist. Robo exists, financial advice exists. This middle segment, which is people led help in the mass market doesn't exist yet. Um, and you only do that if you're not working on a kind of five to seven year VC cycle um, because it's you're not going to crack the problem in that time. Um, and we go into it perfectly aware of that and, and are in a fortunate situation that we can. Yeah. And that, I mean, it, that's so um, prescient over the last year, year and a half with what we've seen with you know, probably massively overvalued private space where, you know, many entrepreneurs' dreams have been uh, scuppered because uh, there was poor due diligence from investors because there were competitive rounds and uh, those companies just blew up and then blew out, um, obviously much in the press about all of this. Um, we'd probably do a different show if we were going to go and talk about that. Um, whether that's in hindsight, Ruth, how you've just articulated how 
the octopus group kind of thinks through disruption or, or whether that has always been one of the core principles and i assume that is the case then that must have played massively into your advantage because that approach right now certainly is uh the one that's talked about uh and it's certainly the one that i believe for something that's genuinely going to take 20 years to really be something that can organically stay around uh i don't know if you have any examples over the last year um where having taken an approach that you guys are quite smug about where two years ago you might not have looked like um you know tiger or or or, or whoever it might be but now that company because it's been slightly more sensibly managed which everyone can preach to now is doing incredibly well yeah i think there's um you know i think so smug is a strong word but we <laughs> I think there's an interesting opportunity to build a sort of slight moat around your business by recognizing that it sits out outside the funding models that most people are used to um and you know when you've built a uh, recurring revenue business uh, an asset management business as we have at octopus um you understand those dynamics a bit better so it does get you into quite different behaviors versus um versus digital only i mean one of the other businesses actually that we brought into the group just before christmas is a phenomenal business called guardian angel um that helps people prepare for and manage bereavement. Um, again, massively mission-led. Um, you should. Uh, Sam would be a great guest for you, actually. But if you if you talk to Sam, he will describe his business in a very similar way, which is bereavement is a tough subject, and it's actually I, I've seen some people talk about a theme in venture, which is so-called taboo subjects, subjects people don't like talking about, sometimes get lower valuations <laughs> because literally people don't enjoy the pitch so much yeah. um, when it's a more emotionally charged subject. And when Sam was, um, you know, he'd, he'd been running his um, his business, was taking a decision over whether to join the group. He looked at this in exactly the same way, which is I need to change the way people feel about death. I need to change the way people understand probate and all of the complexity of when you when you lose someone. And I need to take some of the stress out of that. Um, and he looked at the, the industry just as you did and said, you know, am I going to be better in in kind of VC land where I'm going to have to prove loads of quick customer acquisition at that time? Nowadays, you might want to prove cash burn, but but, you know, the rules are the rules. Um, or do I want to build something that I think is going to um, fulfill my mission and actually change the way people think about this industry um and and that's the decision he took to join the group and i think it's it's those topics where yep. you know it's tough and where you know it's complicated and where you know you're changing hearts and minds that's where i think this this model works particularly well yeah makes so much sense love it just before we move into your um bio which I'm really looking forward to just to finish the scale so we understand um the company obviously mentioned that octopus investment has around 800 people did um on octopus money specifically can you just give, give us some type of scale you know where where where's it based is the team hybrid remote in office um you know what are you doing with that team moving forward and really at the core of it Obviously, we'd be very interested to understand what you think the culture is. Oh, yeah, great question. So we are, um, you know, we're um, I think we're in the kind of one to 100 size, um, as I think of it, rather than a zero to one size. So we are about 70 people um, based in central London. We've then got another 70 coaches who work remotely. Uh, we've got 5000 clients. We work with over 200 workplaces. So. Uh, we're pretty tried and tested. And one of the um, businesses that we brought together to form Octopus Money has been going for five years now. So um, so we're by no means sort of brand new, but we brought lots of things together to try and create that one front door. You know, the culture is actually one of the most critical things. So um, when we launched the brand, we also launched new values internally. And it's a really interesting thing to take a to take an organization through. Previously, we'd use the Octopus Investments values, um, which were great, but we thought, what it what do we need? What is right for our business right now? And actually, we spent all day yesterday um working on them and thinking about what are the rituals that we need to bring into our ways of working to 
um, to help people build the organization that we want to build. And I'd say there's two, there's two core dimensions. One is um, every conversation matters. So every single interaction with a customer has to get them further down their journey of reducing money stress and, and building towards the goals they want. So that's got to be critical. And we really have a great um a great showcase in the group of octopus energy who focused on that from day one is like every customer interaction will feel very different from a normal energy interaction um and so we all live and breathe that and then the second is something that will be in common with lots of people founding um founding businesses which is how do you imagine you can build something that no one else has done before and one of the first rituals we introduced was something called stumble of the week where every week at our all company, we stand up and celebrate the successes, but also the things that we've got wrong and what we've learned from them. And, and you know, it's one of the highlights of the week is it can be anything from someone accidentally sending the whole company their mortgage application, which happened <laughs> to, um, to, you know, I had this client call and it wasn't great. And actually I've thought about it and it should have, I should have done this and I should have done that. Or, you know, I left my suitcase on a train last week. That was pretty stupid. Um, but it's becoming a way of, it's becoming a word. The word stumble has become very quickly part of our everyday vocabulary. And, you know, whether you believe in fail fast or whatever you, um, whatever the culture of your startup is, there's one thing for sure, which is unless you're learning from stumbles, of which you'll have many, you're not going to grow as quickly as you could. And people only learn from stumbles, they have knowledge they've happened. So that normalizing uh, mistakes and learnings, um, I think, has become a really core part of our culture, actually quite quickly. Um, and it's rituals that have done it. So that's um, that's probably the main thing I'd point to. Stumble's a good visual, isn't it? Because you're not falling down or stopping necessarily, but you're slightly taken aback by, you know, a trip or... Um, yeah, I use this analogy. Or... I, I had this analogy of you should feel like you're running downhill a bit too fast. Um, and you know, you've got that feeling where you're like, oh my goodness, my body weight's gonna get away from my legs. Um, but you're just you're just okay. Or the other example I use is a that childhood toy, a weeble. You know, you hit a weeble and it bounces back to the center again. It's like it doesn't matter how many times you get hit. The most important thing is, do you write yourself? And the quicker you write yourself and get yourself kind of centered again, the quicker you're going to build. Um, but it is, it's a lovely word that that yeah. people aren't scared of. No one, I mean, no one yeah. wants to stumble, but but it's not it's not fear. It's, oh, okay, I stumbled, but I carried on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Powerful. It is really powerful. I love that, some of those examples. I'm sure we can come back to that when we're in the mana round. So if you could um, really take us back to, as early as you're happy to, to set the, you know, founding story of Ruth. Um, it's always nice, I find, to understand potential influences or early experiences or dynamics that perhaps um, formed your character. And then ultimately, some of your thinking in career, most people tend to jump to, you know, university and then straight into what they're doing now but if, if 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 you could indulge me and go back further so we can really understand some of those uh early influences please Ruth yeah and I think it's important actually in the case of this business and it's a story I told quite a lot when we launched the business which is you know I grew up in the Midlands in a single parent family um the thing that um we always talked about when I was a kid was uh what if the washing machine breaks because my mum was never quite sure whether she'd be able to fix the washing machine if it broke. And she was a single mum who worked full time. And um, so there was always this thing that money was a constraint um, and money was something to feel stressed about. And, um, and there was definitely a big link for me between that and what you felt you could aim for in life. So you know, I went to my local comprehensive school and I'd say at school, my aspirations were pretty, uh, pretty ordinary. I was always a bit of a geek, so I always worked hard, um, but I was really shy. Um, I think I thought I would be a kind of a capable 
administrative member of society but 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 that that was sort of the level of my ambition genuinely um but I always had this feeling that because my mum had sacrificed a lot to to create a stable home life I always had this very strong feeling of the one thing I can't do is let myself down or disappoint my mum so I was like well I've got to work as hard as I possibly can for this exam because otherwise I've got no one to blame for myself and I always cared about whether I'd worked as hard as I could more than I cared what I got in the exam um, because it's that sense of not letting yourself down and I think that that has probably been a guiding principle that's developed over time into I quite like putting myself in harm's way because actually that trying hard is not just about dealing with the situation you're in but it's putting yourself in ever more challenging situations to see if you can handle it to see if you can swim um so so post uni and I was lucky enough to get just, a place just to, just just to stop you there yeah. um if we stay pre-uni is there a particular moment where you think you either started to dream bigger than to be an administrative member of society um, and or was there a particular influence that came into uh, into your world that perhaps um, then set that um, that dreaming larger or not actually? I think not until I went to uni actually yeah, okay. so I think until that point you know I was fortunate because I was a geek because I always worked hard and I had quite a good memory as a kid so I found the standard educational system okay and I would get good exam results and so there's a the point at which if you're often top of your class you think well that's kind of good so I'll probably you know I'm probably not going to be unemployed for the rest of my life because because I know I can pass an exam and I know I'm going to yeah. come out with some decent A levels and all of those things um, and I always worked. So I did, you know, the jobs I did when I was at school, I, you know, I was a checkout girl at Sainsbury's. I washed cars. I delivered papers. I did the night shift in a salad factory. I worked in a Volkswagen garage. So I'd always, I was always doing something to earn money. That, that um, is quite, that's I, quite, that's quite a jumpy CV though, Ruth. It's quite like, a jumpy what CV. were you, what were you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I know it is quite a jumpy CV. Um, but, um, but so there was, so I guess when I did those jobs, I kind of, I figured out quite quickly that I could do them and that I was probably going to, you know, maybe I'd be the one that was given a bit more responsibility, but I never, and I never dreamed big until I got to uni. When you were going um, back home after school, then, you know, that could be, that could be so different over different eras, but, you know, you, you pick the time frame. Was, was your... Was your mum encouraging you to, you know, take your study to the optimum or not? Was that coming from you solely? It's a great question. We talk about it now, actually. Uh, she always says, I never told you to do your homework. You just sort of did it. For me, it was a more inbuilt sense of, you know, even from a young age, I was like, she's doing so, so much. Um, my responsibility to this family is to contribute as well. So it was never, no, it was never, um, it was never forced. And actually, I think that's almost interesting in itself, because yeah. if you get used to motivating yourself, that's yeah. something that stays with you. Um, and if I were to advocate for um, for mixed educational models, that feeling of um, having to try quite hard and having to work hard to succeed and having to um you know I had this classic thing where no one at my school had gotten a in a level chemistry for like five years and I needed one to get my uni place so I was like I'm just gonna buy the textbook and and make sure I work through it all because that gives me the best chance yeah um and that sense of taking responsibility for your own outcome rather than sitting back and saying well if the teacher hasn't taught me it then can't be important I kind of knew that wasn't the case <laughs> otherwise some more people would have got better exam results so that that definitely uh, that definitely stuck with me. So interesting. And then you um, go to university. Yeah. Um, so I got a place at Cambridge, which was a massive surprise to me, um, mainly because I had this funny thing coming from a from, coming from a place where not many people had taken that path, where all of my friends were like, "Oh, no one's gonna, everyone's gonna be posh. You're not gonna, you're not gonna um, have anything in common with them. Do you really want to go?" Um, 
and the headmaster of the school made it very clear that you can't turn down a place at Cambridge, you have to go. Um, and you know, and you get there and you realize there are people from all walks of life and what defines you is not your background, it's your personality. So um, so you realize that um, it lifts you out of probably what for me was quite a narrow set of influences um, when I was growing up to a- When you, when you, get, when, when you get there in the first kind of few weeks or few months or first year, really there's a scenario where you've been top of class for the reasons you've just explained and now you're in one of the most um academically successful environments on the planet how do you take to that did did, did you um did you relish that um, I mean, it sounds like you you you, you very quickly realised, oh, I can fit in here. This is more about personality. This is not all about class or, or, or whatever that um, concern from your your peers was. But did it make you strive to? Were you competitive to to get to the top of those classes? Or or, or what can happen is sometimes, and I've seen this a lot, people can get there and go, oh God, I'm not I'm not you know I'm not the top of the class anymore, and actually I fell out of my depth, and and suddenly then they fail as a student. What happened with your experience? Yeah, you know, it's the thing that I remember vividly my mum sitting me down and saying to me before I went, as a teacher, she'd seen this happen numerous times. She was like, there will come a point when you're not top of the class and you you should be okay. That's not a failing. Yeah. Um, and so I definitely heard that. But my my response is always sort of the one I described before, which is it doesn't matter necessarily if I'm top of the class. It matters if I've done myself justice. Yeah. So I think I just went back to that, which is if I'm doing the best I can, what will be will be. What's yeah. not acceptable is not doing the best I can. Um, so um, it's not it's not say it's not daunting. Crikey, you go to your first. I remember going to my first supervision, which is sort of the small group session, being surrounded by people who'd um, who were probably much more confident than me for a start, which was one of the big differences yeah. I think, between my background and some other people's backgrounds. But also, I mean, I just had a better standard of education. Like they just learned more before they got to that point. So at that point, you're like, geez, oh, I remember walking out my first one thinking, this is going to be, I'm going to have to work pretty hard here. So you definitely have that feeling. Um, but I think for me, I just, I went back to those core principles, which is, uh, which is work hard, which I which I continued to do, um, and um, and it so long as I was doing myself justice, I managed to steer clear of feeling uh, feeling too too overwhelmed or daunted. I think we in um, I mean you, you'll be the same. You know, been across hiring so many people. We're obviously across hiring an infinite amount of people and trying to work out why different people come to their careers at different phases. And, and certainly one of the messages through this show I try to put to the market is, you know, run your own race. Um, many successful people and successes in the eye of the beholder, um, you know, what the perception of successes doesn't always make for a happy and productive person. So like rounded, longer term approach. But when somebody does kind of get into senior opportunities relatively quickly why is that and of course there's a myriad of things but we have this expression which is commercial maturity and I think that basically you're exhibiting uh 10 out of 10 with that to have had the level-headedness to look down on your own situation and understand that you know you should really be proud if you're putting your best in and as long as you're being proactive and not just you know well how could I have done better in the earlier example because no one got an A in this chemistry class? That's unbelievably commercially mature, Ruth. So we can see why then the career is, again, what we call, you know, rising very fast. Um, so kudos, kudos to you and kudos to your mum as well because yeah, it sounds mom, like definitely. she gave lots of very wise uh, examples. I always love it when, because I'm a parent now, you try to think through the psychology of uh, of, of how to parent and you know whether you're playing reverse psychology or whatever, whatever it might be. And so many people who've come on the show uh, have this situation where their parents are from academia, um, and those parents seem to be phenomenally good because uh, they've got a big data set uh, of, of of not being the ones who are like you must do your work. Almost always they've worked that out, 
but then always the the student does phenomenally well so I do want to make sure that I uh don't do what comes so like instinctively which is you know my daughter's Lily like come on Lily you know you you've got to be like uh doing all your homework and like if 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 this is what you need to do today you should be preparing for the work next year because you know if I if I become that parent uh, she's going to not want to do her work or as you say she'll only learn how to do that when being told to do it so it's the wrong approach that's been very yeah. useful to hear this <laughs> yeah and I I yeah the same um the same is definitely true of my mum when I talk to her now she will say oh gosh you know I just mainly I mainly got on with going to work and sort of ignored you um it's not completely untrue but it gives you this wonderful role model when you're thinking about the balance of parenting and working that I have this thing to go back to to say I had an incredibly ch happy childhood I've got a phenomenal relationship with my mum she worked full time um she um you know I'd walk myself home from school and let myself in and make the tea and uh, but actually I admire her and look up to her in a way that um goes way beyond um what I what you what you might expect and and you kind of can easily conflate when you become a parent presence with with parenting um and um and it's really I found it really nice to have a role model that proved that that's not the only way oh you just had the police going past my place <laughs> yeah absolutely love it so from this um, dizzy heights of Cambridge and, 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 and you, you, you relishing it um, and not becoming intimidated. Is there a moment where you could take us to where you really, and it might be later on, find what, if you believe that there was this moment, you know, you felt like a bigger mission than yourself was in your career? I, it's sort of, I started my career with that quite firmly held. So actually one of my first jobs was a consultant to public sector organizations. I always wanted to work something in something that was mission driven. Um, and actually I, there were probably two, um, two types of experience I'd point to that, um, that really shaped the, me understanding what kind of um, opportunities I'd enjoy. The first is mission. So I tried working to support public sector organizations. I then spent um, later in my career, spent a year living and working in West Africa in Sierra Leone, um, working in the Ministry of Trade to, um, to sort of help part, as part of a team, help the civil service understand how to govern post-conflict, um, which when you've been through a horrendous protracted conflict as they had been, you realize the very machinery of government has kind of fallen apart. So I spent a, an incredible year doing that. Um, and then I worked for mission-driven private organizations. And what I realized is that um, I there needs to be more than profit for me to get excited about um, um, a role. But actually working in government and in development is quite slow for me. So I'm quite an action-oriented person. And often working in government, particularly in international development, you're an influencer. And influence for me didn't quite give me the career satisfaction that I wanted. And, you know, it takes all sorts. So works for some people, not for me. So I gravitated towards mission driven private organizations. So that was kind of one set of influences. The other actually has been my experience working for entrepreneurs. So my third sort of proper job, as it were, was working for a couple of entrepreneurs who'd founded a recruitment and research consultancy. I worked in the research piece. And I joined, they were like, oh, you know, we don't really have a professional service practice. Why don't you set one up? I was probably 26 at this point. They were like, well, you know, if you make money, then you can hire some more people. And if you don't, then you've got to sack your team. And it was from that first moment, they were like, well, it's your business. Go and go and run it. I was like, oh, this is fun. Because actually all of that, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to put my heart and soul into it. Suddenly it really pays back because you're given the freedom to grow something. Um, and then I found similarly when I um, when I joined as first employee for a challenger bank before I joined Octopus, same feeling is working for entrepreneurs, getting that freedom probably gave me that um, that um, probably that desire to think big. You know, you said, when did you start thinking big? It definitely wasn't during my childhood. I think it was when I started working for entrepreneurs who 
naturally think big. It infused me with that confidence to think, well, if I've got this basis of working hard and driving myself and and caring about the mission, then maybe I can think big. But I think it was the influence of entrepreneurs that that got me there. Yeah. And that um, business where you got that first opportunity, um, I can speak to having a absolutely unbelievable reputation. Um, and I love what they've done. And I'm sure you're quite responsible for building part of that because um, much like what we're talking about with um, Octopus Money and much like with Mana, and it's unfortunately quite um, rare to come across in, you know, HR services or hiring or, or search. They just employed a bar above the individuals who normally come into the space for sure. They use clever, disruptive blue ocean pricing models. Um, and it's, it's, part of their business model is quite inspiring for what we do. Um, so, you know, then when you move on to the challenger bank that you moved on to, you actually have got such a useful toolkit of skills from all of those different environments. Uh, and you take a big role on at that point. And this is where you come to um, fintech at the really exciting dawning of the neobank um, era in the UK. And that's something that uh, we were right at the front globally of. Um, I'd love to, I mean, that relates for the first time specifically to then the mission that you're, you're on now, I think. Um, I'd love to know, you know, at that point, what you really were doing it for, because you've been in, a consultancy it's got the things that you talked about you've been in government you felt that you know this is slow you've got a taste of entrepreneurialism you've built business units why do you go and take that challenge in a fintech business yeah it's a great question um and as with many of these things the answer is part design and part opportunity so um it was what year was it, it must have been 2014 um, so it was that real heyday of no one had set up a new bank for 100 years apart from Metro. Literally no one had got a new banking license. Yeah. And and the government and the regulator were saying, we want more competition. Um, and I happened through, um, through kind of coincidence to meet two founders who wanted to do just that. They were like, we're going to start a bank. And, and their pitch was always, we're going to start a good bank. And this was also the time when... Everyone hated their current account. There hadn't been much innovation in retail banking since the original kind of um, online bank um, boom of the sort of 2000.com era. Nothing had really changed. We'd had the financial crisis. Customers felt like they were getting a crap deal. So um, so when I met um, Ricky and Matt, who were the founders, um, Ricky had run FinTechs. Matt had been one of the founders of Capital One. You're like, these guys have pedigree they want to do something good. They both are actually incredibly mission-driven individuals. And I was sort of really, really excited by that. Um, and it was almost one of those, it sort of goes back to that childhood thing of, uh, could I live with myself saying no to this kind of massively audacious opportunity? No, I'd always kick myself for not trying. Um so I felt like I I couldn't not do it. A little bit like when I was offered the chance to go to Sierra Leone, it was exactly the exactly the same feeling. Um, and then what I you know did I go into it thinking, um, this is my this is my mission? Probably not at that stage. Actually, what was important is that there was a mission, and there was a mission that I could identify with and get really excited about. Um, you know, probably until that point, I'd been much more passionate about social mobility because you're always passionate about things that you've experienced i was really passionate about international development because i'd had that recent um recent period of working with in west africa and actually it wasn't probably until i got to octopus that i started to piece those things together and realize that one of the best ways you can drive social mobility particularly in the workplace is by giving people financial resilience so i'd be lying if i said that wasn't a bit of a post hoc judgment but what was important for me was putting myself in harm's way, working with people who believed in a mission and, and who were going to build in sort of what, what felt like the right way. This was going to be something we could be proud of. Um, it was about that time I 
developed this sort of career guide of if people said, you know, why did you take this job? I'd say, well, it has to pass what I call the pub test. And for me, the pub test is I have to be able to sit down next to someone in a pub that I've never met and feel pride in what I'm doing. Um, and, and pride can come in many forms. It can be doing something like going and living in West Africa, which which not many people have done, or starting a bank, which not many people have done, or having a social mission, but I have to feel proud of it. Um, and definitely joining Neobank at that stage when no one had done it was sort of the uh, the best example I could think of, that pride. I love it. I've had to change my pub test to like a mint tea test. <laughs> Jess, what parenting you know, does right <laughs> i'm getting too old i'm exhausted the whole time but um yeah no i i completely relate to that uh that's a great way to look at it look we talked about um octopus money and you really brought us up to speed with um with the bio there but i would like to just um before we go on to the mana round to conclude this phase which i'm excited about to give you the chance to talk about uh, a big topic for us we have another show in the future of work which we would love you to come on to at some point um we're really trying to look at because nobody knows but look at from people who are really on the scene some of the trends that are changing and uh, in in the workplace in 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 the cultural environment around com- commercial enterprise and i mean you've had a massive role of a big team um for the last five years or so uh through a a time that has just had huge huge things uh escalate the move to remote working distributed workforce and all these type of things so i know it's a big topic ruth but i'm going to let you proactively talk to something within that arena um you know something to do with how you had to adjust the culture of that large organization through that time, please. Yeah. And it was a phenomenal. So it's so a running Octopus Investments, my first CEO role. Um, and we went into lockdown 18 months, two years later. Um, so it was relatively early in my yeah. kind of life as a CEO. And um, and the thing that lockdown did for me is it made me really understand what culture means. So I think, you know, being totally honest, in my 20s, if someone said these are our company values, I'd be like, oh, it's kind of just words. Like I I worked with people I liked, but I, I thought that a, a concept of corporate culture was, was sort of a bit made up. Um, and then you get into a situation like lockdown and you realize that all of the things that you've relied on to build what I now understand is company culture which is interaction disappear and you've got to figure out therefore how you how you recreate that um and at the time I had a phenomenal um career coach who um helped me understand what is important in your style of leadership to do that and the thing she always said to me when I first started doing the job was you know you show up and people trust that you're competent like you're quite logical and you've always got a plan and you're quite well prepared cool so you've ticked that box so people will will probably do what you ask because they think there's a there's a method to your madness what they don't feel is emotionally connected because you talk with your head not your heart you don't talk a lot about yourself and your background you don't necessarily let people in so they'll you'll they'll let you manage them but they won't follow you and actually leadership is something much deeper than a plan and consistency it's an emotional connection and for people to feel an emotional connection they need to know you they need to understand that you're as fallible as them they need to understand that um that um that that you're adjusting as you go and that you're making stumbles along the way and what lockdown did for me is I found the change from standing up in an auditorium talking to 800 people to having 800 people on a zoom screen gave me the opportunity to practice that in a way that I hadn't really anticipated because the great thing about a zoom screen if you have everyone on there is you can pick people out and you can almost have individual conversations in front of a broader set of people which makes you seem and come across much more human than the big speech the sort of TED talk from the stage um and because I did more of that and I sort of had this coach who was reinforcing some of these messages it made me 
it's sort of what got me to probably the culture that we're trying to create in money, which is one of stumbles, one of saying what you mean, one of acceptance, one of um, one of bringing your whole sen- self to work. Because I'd actually personally tried those things and realized that it built a better management team. It made us more productive. It uh, meant that when things go wrong, went wrong, we were better able to respond to them because people fundamentally trusted each other. Um, so I found that period quite um, instructive for me personally. Coming out the other end, actually, I'm kind of delighted that we now work in a model of three days a week. Most people are in the office because we're rebuilding all those social ties and they are undeniably easier to build in person. Um, So it's not to say that remote first doesn't work for some businesses. I find it hard in the culture that we're trying to build. And I think that's the critical thing is you you build uh sort of flexibility hybrid whatever model you build it around the culture or it's in service of the culture rather than the other way around um and and we find hybrid um works best for us but but we love having periods when everyone's everyone's together thanks Ruth. we've got to get you on the future work show because i've got seven questions and then that'll take another two hours let me just very quickly highlight a couple of things there you got um, a career coach, I think you described them as, or a mentor. So that is um, a great thing to do, depending on who they are. How did you select who that was? Oh, so she was. she's a very special individual who, very tragically, we lost to cancer about a month ago. So oh, she sorry. was a head of people at Octopus. And um, she's one of the most phenomenal people I've ever worked with. So she was a wonderfully warm person who spoke the truth, like no, um, uh, you know, no beating around the bush. And she combined those things. So you felt very uh, looked after at the same time as someone was being totally honest with you. But also the magic she brought is that she understood Octopus. So she'd been at Octopus much longer than me. She understood the culture. She understood all the people. Um so it was the first time I'd worked with a career coach who was in the business rather than external to the business. And I'd always previously thought, well, you kind of need that safe space. You need someone who's able to bring perspective. Actually, Kirsty was able to bring perspective at the same time as being able to, to layer things on because she observed you so often doing your job. Um, so she was a very special individual, and but it's, it's brought me to a model, and I, I'm just putting it in place in money actually, where the management team share a coach because I think someone who's able to work on relationships as well as work on you as an individual um, is quite powerful. And that that's the thing I think made the difference for me. When you go back to in-person because you think it's more appropriate for your culture, you said you find it's much easier or quicker to make those in-person relationships unquestionably why and if you had to stay remote did you not get to the point where that would get to that level of efficiency I think you could for me it's a it's a question of trust and friendship so friendship isn't a word we use much in the workplace but I think the question of do you have friends at work is one of the most powerful predictors of whether you're going to retain your team um and similarly, if someone comes to me and says, I'm I'm not working well with this person, I say, go and sit next to them for a week and then come back and tell me whether there's still a problem. <laughs> because we're all people and we, we like to put people in the boxes of their jobs role. But fundamentally, we're all people. And if you spend enough time with someone, you're going to find things that you really like and things that and things that you share. So to me, it is an acceleration is when you're physically present and when you can sit next to someone and you can be in the flow of the conversation, you're more likely to get to trust and friendship quickly. You can do it on a screen, um, but those times that you spend silently in your room versus the time you spent with someone sitting next to you having a casual conversation, I think is the, is the time that you sort of miss, you lose. And that's why it takes that little bit longer in a um in a remote first organization. The other thing that I think is is interesting in this is the difference between individual productivity and business productivity. So to me, business productivity includes creativity and ideas and decision, rapid decision making, very different from individual productivity, which 
uh, I could easily argue I'm better sitting at home um, on individual productivity. Without doubt, there's just fewer distractions. I think that's quite different from corporate productivity where um, you're never going to come up with all the best ideas on your own. So that kind of sparring and sharing, uh, I think, defines corporate productivity better than than how much you get done in a day. Yeah, this um, and you, you, you not just across um, Octopus here, you're across your investments. There's vast um, pool of insights here. So we'll get you onto the future work because I'd love to carry on. Uh, I mean, if, if you'd be interested, because love I'd to. love to carry on talking yeah. around some of the determinations. We've done big studies on this um, and it's such a fascinating um, topic. Okay, let's go into the rapid fire mile round. Ruth, I'm going to ask five or six questions that we ask all the audience, which is really interesting for us to get the uh, the answer to the same questions. Feel free to be yes or no or very brief on the response. So yeah. if you really want to dig into something, then 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 please do do so. First question: If you could have the front page of uh, and let us know which it is your you know, favorite publication, the FT, the Economist, or um, the Daily Mail, wh whichever it is, you've got the front page. What would be the message that you would put onto it? Uh, something like, uh, if you're serious about diversity in your leadership teams, you have to build the financial resilience of your workforce. Love it. And the publication? Probably the FT. I mean, we all want to be on the FT, right? Yeah. <laughs> amazing i love that just say that one more time again if you want if to you're build, serious if you're yeah serious. if you're serious about the diversity of your senior team you have to build the financial resilience of your workforce what does that mean the last bit people don't take career risks when they're worried about their finances so i think one of the reasons we get poor diversity in senior teams which we do undeniably particularly in financial services is because uh, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and women take fewer career risks. And I think that's often because their finances aren't under control or planned or they feel nervous about them. I can see that you are involved with some initiatives to that. We'll put some of those in the show notes because I completely, completely agree with what you're saying. Ruth, what keeps you up at night? Normally for me, it is people challenges. It's the kind of tax of leadership that I'm way more likely to be kept awake by worrying I got a conversation wrong than by a logical decision I made. Do you have any measures to not be kept up every night? I, I gen, Generally, it's a case of saying to people uh, to their face what you would say about them. Like it's a classic, but I think it's the core of any organisation. So, so long as you've been honest and open um, if someone's been taken aback, it's not because you've been disingenuous. It's because you've you've told the truth. Um, so that that sort of is the bit that allows you to put your mind at rest, I think. Love it. Is there in the morning, because you're coming into a role where you need to make as great decisions strategically and with people as possible, and you've got a lot to do. Is there something you do that, sets you into the right balance into your work day it can be the gym it can be the spa it might be nothing what's what what is that for you no in the morning it's nothing specific apart from I like to get the chance to see my kids because that sense of um perspective and normality and is important um, I really value sleep. So I like to start the day rested. I value sleep over most other things. Um, my ritual is not a morning ritual. I love running. Running is sort of my yoga or meditation. It's when I clear my head. Um, but I tend to do that at the end of the day, uh, just for logistics. But that's my, if I haven't run for a while, that's when I start to lose the plot a bit. Any type of event you're working toward in running at the moment oh you know what I need one last year my objective which I did was to run 25k every week wow. which is quite a um it's quite a forcing factor because some days when you're busy you're like how, how am I going to find time for that extra 10k and then the year before that I did a half marathon every month was my um so I'm going to sign up for a half marathon in the autumn I think but um 
So your but daily yeah. type of run is five-ish K then typically? Yeah, I run back to the station most evenings, yeah. but then Saturday morning, 7.30 a.m. is my uh, is my most closely guarded diary time of the week. That's when I go out normally with a couple of friends into the fields um, and do however long I've got time for, 10 or 15 K. That's my, that's my happy time of the week. Oh, yeah, just like the founder of Nike, that's how he used to balance himself <laughs> There you out. go. There we go. Is there, is there a... You know, it could be a mantra, it could be a particular book, it could be a passage of text. Maybe you created it yourself, knowing you, Ruth, that, you know, you come back to that's the affirmation um, for you. Not a passage of text per se, but it's the theme that I've I've found myself talking about a lot, which is sort of solidified it in my head as I talk about it. It's that don't let yourself down. Um, but it, but it's almost broader than probably the context I've used it in, which is don't let yourself down. Might be about working hard, but it might also be about being fair, being kind, um, treating others as you'd like to be treated yourself. But just don't let yourself down is probably, probably the one. You a big reader? Not really. I read the paper. I love to. I love to know what's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, I reading is the thing that gets done on holidays because I can't quite figure out how else to fit it into my day. Any any book recommendations for the audience? Oh, I mean, if you're um, it's not a business book, but I've read there's a very funny book called The Echo Chamber, which is my current recommendation. It's a sort of parody on modern life, but it really made me laugh. Amazing. We'll put it in the show notes. So uh, final question. You are on the Searching for Mana show. Mana, for anybody who doesn't know, is in gaming your magic. You have your power, your life, and then you have your mana, which uh, might be that you can jump really high, run really quickly, whatever it might be. Ruth, what is your mana? I think it's perspective. So I think um, the thing that I found um, most powerful is uh, understanding partly how lucky many of us are, partly how, um, how you know, no one's going to create um, opportunities unless you make them yourself, but constantly opening your eyes and realising that it, it, don't let yourself get in your own head too much and think that the world's ending perspective, being able to drag yourself out of that and go, this is all going to be okay if I'm, if I'm true to myself. That's, that's mine, I think. I love it. And that's a beautiful note to finish on, Ruth. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I think we've got, hopefully, you on a couple others moving forward. There's so many different topics we could talk to. Um, congratulations on your success. The The way that you talked through your bio and your mentality, I think, should be hopefully really inspiring for so many people listening to this. It is never a perfect um journey is it for anybody but there is absolute master classes in there so i learn a lot myself uh thank you so much for your valuable time thank you so much for having me really enjoyed it thank you for joining us on this edition of the searching for mana podcast we hope you've enjoyed it and hope to see you again next time please subscribe to our youtube spotify or itunes to make sure you receive all the latest episodes as they are released